Bit quietly when people ask us questions, hey. Um, we're, for those who are new or those who are visiting, we're going through a book at the moment. Uh, it's quite a long series. It goes for a whole year. Uh, we're not going to go for a whole year probably, but um, called Through the Bible Through the Year by John Stott. And so we're working through that uh, slowly. Uh, today, this week rather, we've been looking at uh, Jesus' controversial company, the controversial company that Jesus keeps. Uh, as you read through Scripture, something that comes across pretty clearly is that Jesus likes to keep controversial company. He likes to hang out with people that uh, other people wouldn't hang out with. In various places, you see him hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and uh, all kinds of people, all of it to the ire of the religious uh, authorities of his time. Today, though, as Christians, we do kind of a different thing. We actually kind of, um, we like to kind of wear it as a badge of honour that Jesus would hang out with the, with the down and outs. We kind of love this image of Jesus who is a friend of sinners. And I think we should love that. I think uh, Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we love the fact that Jesus loves sinners because it means that he loves us. But when we use this phrase, when we say that Jesus loves sinners, and rightly we should celebrate that, we do need to be careful about how we frame that truth, I think. Because did Jesus, quite often we'll say, Jesus loved to hang out with sinners. But did Jesus really hang out with sinners? Or is there more to the story than that communicates? And so we're going to be reading in Luke 5. If you uh, have your Bible there, you can turn to Luke 5, verses 27 to 32. And while you're doing that, uh, I will just pray. God, we give you thanks for the way that you came uh, as Jesus Christ, who really broke a bunch of the moulds um, that the religious authorities of the time had created. Lord, you came uh, and you were loved to those who uh, others felt were unlovable. Father, you spent time with those who other people would reject. We do celebrate that. Lord, as we look to your word today, we pray that you would speak through it. God, as we study the way that you lived among us, might we go out and live among our people in the same way. God, might we look to you as our example, might we live as you lived, might we glorify you, might we honour you through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I always forget to use my clicker. So Luke 5, 27 to 32. Let's read it together. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so if you have been in church for any period of time, you'll probably know that tax collectors were the baddies of Jesus' time. They were the guys that everyone didn't like. They were uh, collaborators with the Romans. Uh, and so good Jewish people who were staunchly nationalistic people uh, rejected tax collectors 
um, because of the way that they collaborated with the Romans. But Jesus is not one to be controlled by what other people do and say. And so Jesus, uh, well, he not only decides to speak or interact with this tax collector, but he actually asks him to join his group. He says, follow me. And Levi, who is also known as Matthew, uh, did that. Uh, basically, it appears that he kind of left everything and joined Jesus' merry band of misfits and followed him around. And so to celebrate this seeming kind of um, unceremonious quitting of his job, uh, it would appear that he then threw a great feast for all his tax collector mates. You leave a job, you go and throw a party. And so that's what he did. And we see that Jesus is right there in the thick of it. Something that's a little strange about the passage that we're reading today is that it sounds as though the Pharisees are there also. Because it talks about how the Pharisees uh, kind of grumbled against Jesus. But if we know anything about the Pharisees, I think we can probably say that it was unlikely that they were kind of just hanging around at the back of the party, kind of drinking punch and looking crankily at people. Because really the Pharisees wouldn't be caught dead with a crowd like this. Uh, in Jesus' time, in the time that we're studying here, hospitality was different than it is in our culture. I think if we think about hospitality, think about parties in our culture, usually it would be invite only. We have a party in the safety and security of our own house. Um, but in Jesus' time, it was a much more public event. People could come and go freely, and seemingly the Pharisees were able to observe what was going on from some sort of safe, pious distance, I assume. It's interesting, hospitality actually still looks a bit like this in some cultures. Uh, I was in Bangladesh in 2018 and I was amazed at the way that the Bangladeshi people kind of just do life in public. They kind of just do... And so we might, uh, we might hang around when we have a cup of tea in the morning, we'd have a cup of tea at our kitchen table. But they don't, they have a cup of tea down in the street with all their friends. Uh, if, if you're just kind of hanging around, we would just sit in our house and watch Netflix. They seemingly kind of just mill around in the street and watch the cars go past. All right, there was even one guy I remember seeing who was brushing his teeth in the street and just spitting into the, spitting into the gutter. Everything is done in public in a lot of these different places. So the Pharisees, probably unlikely to um, brush their teeth and spit in the gutter, spot Jesus uh, and they ask his um, disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I think it's probably useful also to consider what they mean when they say sinners. So I said at the start that uh, we love how Jesus hangs out with sinners, that we love that Jesus loves sinners because we're all sinners. But the people that the Pharisees had in mind were, were a bit more specific than that. They weren't talking about kind of humanity and our kind of universal sin nature they had in mind people who were not good Jews, people who didn't abide by the Jewish regulations, the Jewish laws. And so when they say sinners, what they mean is people who are not good Jews. And for the Pharisees, the concept of eating together had a lot of meaning. I think it does for us as well. Maybe we don't recognise it quite so much, but they did. They, they felt like when you ate with a person, you actually, there was a sense where you accepted that person. And so to eat with people who were not Jewish was not done in their society. We can probably assume also that they had some fear of being contaminated. They were people of strong uh, ritualistic cleansing 
And so to meet with people who hadn't followed all the rituals and the, clean, the cleansing uh, methods would have probably been a horrifying idea for them. And so sinners are people who uh, didn't abide by all the Jewish kind of piety customs, people who uh, the Pharisees rejected um, because they were not good Jews. Pharisees would reject eating with them because uh, that would look bad uh, socially, and they rejected eating with them because it would be an unclean um, activity. I think understanding sinners within that frame helps us to understand uh, why Jesus says what he says next. And so the, the Pharisees have questioned him, and he says, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come... I don't know where that's gone. I've lost one passage there. Anyway, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So John Stott uh, says of this scenario... When saying that he had come to call to repentance not the righteous but sinners, he meant not that some people are so righteous that they do not need salvation, but some people think they are. And so by righteous here, he meant self-righteous. And so when he, when, when he used this word righteous, Jesus had in mind not righteous in the sense that we might understand it, not righteous in the sense of perfectly upright, but righteous in the sense of self-righteous. And so the Pharisees, they felt like they were righteous because they adhered to all the Jewish laws and all the Jewish customs. And so they were literally self-righteous. They felt like because of the things they had done themselves, they were then made righteous before God. But Jesus came really to explode this myth uh, for Jews and for those of us uh, further down the line. He came to kind of explode this myth that we could have salvation through self-righteousness. That's why we can read in Romans 3, 9, Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so this was the message that, the, that Jesus brought for the Jewish establishment, basically. And it was the message that they then basically couldn't understand and then rejected. It's the message that none is righteous, no not one. Now, I'm talking a lot about how the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were self-righteous, but I think there's a good message for us in our world today as well here. Uh, there are very few pious um, Jewish leaders trotting around Toowoomba, but quite often the people that we come up against will have a very uh, strong sense of um, heaven based on self-righteousness. While most of our friends will probably be secularist and so they will feel like they have no need for, for God or Jesus or any of that spooky mumbo-jumbo, almost all of them will still believe in some concept of heaven. And not only will they believe in some concept of heaven, they'll also be convinced that them and all their friends are going to be there. 
I've been to countless funerals and seen uh, countless Facebook posts about how Uncle Jim is up in heaven looking down on us. Well, why is Uncle Jim up in heaven? Well, because he was a good, he was a good person. He, um, he, didn't, he wasn't a murderer. He didn't cheat on his wife. Uh, he was nice to his mother. And so we assume, or people assume, Uncle Jim is probably in heaven. But Jesus came to explode the myth of salvation through self-righteousness. He came to explode it both for Jews and for people in our day and age. That's why he says in Matthew uh, 5, the Sermon on the Mount, things like, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So Uncle Jim maybe hasn't murdered anybody, but has he ever been angry with anybody? If he has, Jesus says that he is liable to judgment. Again, Matthew 5, 27 to 28, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. In his, yeah, with her in his heart, rather. And so Uncle Jim may not have cheated on his wife, but did he ever look at, upon anybody with lustful intent? And if he did, Jesus says that he is liable to judgment. The last one. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet though, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, Uncle Jim might have been kind to his mother, but how did he treat his enemies? I think it knits in well uh, for our particular story that Jesus mentions in verse 46 that even tax collectors manage to love those who love them. There are a number of hurdles that are stopping people from uh, coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour today, but I think one of the major hurdles that we're up against is the issue of self-righteousness. The issue that people are convinced uh, in their own pride that they are going to heaven, which is then keeping them out of the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus was able to say in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, their righteousness was not righteousness at all. It was self-righteousness. And we cannot, self-righteousness cannot save anyone. It cannot save us, and it cannot save them, and it can't even save Uncle Jim. I'm sorry for anyone who has an Uncle Jim here today. As believers, we need to challenge this concept of self-righteousness. We need our friends and family who do not know Christ to realize their need for him. 
None is righteous. No, not one. Instead, Jesus says in uh, the passage for today that he has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we have, again, uh, this situation where the righteous, as I've said, are the self-righteous in our passage. Well, sinners uh, are actually the humble, confusingly enough, in the sentence we're looking at. And so when Jesus says uh, that he has come to call sinners to repentance, what he's saying is that he has come to call those who recognize their need for Jesus, for those who recognize their need for him and who are therefore ready to repent. I think the fact that repentance as a concept is a bit on the nose in the society in which we live says a lot about the self-righteousness of the society in which we live. People don't want to be told that they are sinful. And they certainly don't want to be told that they need to repent. But the scriptures are crystal clear that repentance is part of coming to Jesus. It's a necessary part of conversion. When John the Baptist turned up, the first word he said was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when Jesus began to preach... Uh, we read in Matthew 4.17 that he said a similar thing. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in today's passage, we see that Jesus' mission to the world was was that he he came to call sinners to repentance. It's an unavoidable part of the gospel message. We must call for people to repent of their sinfulness. But there are good ways and there are bad ways for us to do that. Um, I follow a group on Facebook called OAC Ministries, OAC Ministries Queensland, in fact, uh, the one that I follow. Uh, They're kind of like a modern-day conception of open-air campaigners, if you know about open-air campaigners, which I'm assuming you do, because John was uh, involved with them years ago. I find it really useful, actually, to read the interactions that they have on their Facebook page, because they continuously challenge people with their sinfulness but they do it with gentleness and with respect, like 1 Peter uh, 3.15 would have us do. One strategy they use is they have this kind of flipboard thing that they call the good person test. And so people are walking past and there's this thing that says, hey, would you like to do the good person test? And they have to kind of turn the pages. And basically what they do is that they take some of God's moral laws, so they use some of uh, the, the Ten Commandments, and they use those commandments to help people see that they have violated, violated God's standard for them. And so it's usually done by asking things like, have you ever? And so to go back to the examples we used earlier, you might ask, um, have you ever been angry with anyone? And of course they'll say, oh yeah, I have actually all the time. I'm angry with my wife right now. Um, or whatever the situation might be. Just making assumptions here from my own experience. But <laughs> where is my wife? She's over here. She's not listening, so it's fine. Hello, I love you. Um, And so that's the idea. The idea is to ask these questions and allow people to see their own guilt before God. And so what they'll do is they'll try and show the person they're talking to that because God is just, he cannot be, uh, uh, these people cannot be made right with him. And so they deserve hell. Hence their need for a saviour. And so then they're able to share uh, about the cross and about what Jesus has done 
for them. Now, this is not complicated. It's not a complicated strategy. All they're doing is presenting the Ten Commandments or some version of the moral laws to people for them to consider about their own lives. But I think it's a useful uh, kind of strategy for us as we seek to reach out to our friends and family, many of whom will think that they deserve to go to heaven. Because they're basically good, they assume that through their kind of self-righteousness, they deserve to go to heaven. The reality is that until our friends can recognise their sinfulness before God, it will be very hard for them to grasp why they have to repent because they won't know what they have to repent for. And so like Christ, we need to be willing to call our friends to repentance. But our culture also necessitates that we then help people to understand why they need to call to why they need to um, ask for repentance in the first place. There's another issue that I kind of uh, alluded to, flagged at the start of the message. I said, "Did Jesus really hang out with sinners, or is there more to the story than this picture portrays?" There's a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He's one of um, the Gospel Coalition people. Uh, And he, apparently, when he was a young pastor, used the phrase that Jesus hung out with drunks. Now, someone in his congregation uh, graciously challenged him on that, arguing that Jesus didn't just kind of hang out with people in a state of drunkenness. There's always more to the interaction than this. Jesus is a friend of sinners. We've seen that today in the passage. But we need to be clear on how he was a friend to sinners. The young puts it like this. It's very small there, but as long as you can read that, that's the main thing. It is all too easy and amazingly common for Christians or non-Christians to take the general truth that Jesus was a friend of sinners and twist it all out of biblical recognition. And so Jesus ate with sinners becomes Jesus loved a good party, which becomes Jesus was more interested in showing love than taking sides which becomes Jesus always sided with religious outsiders, which becomes Jesus would blow bubbles for violations of the Torah. Now, he's obviously using tongue-in-cheek there. He's obviously using... uh, But I think he makes a good point. Jesus didn't just kind of hang out with sinners as a kind of live-and-let-live Messiah. Sinners were drawn to Jesus, and Jesus interacted with them, spent time with them, if they were open to his teaching, if they were open to his call to repentance. We just read in verse 32, five, uh, Luke 5, 32, Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so it doesn't say that he came to hang out with sinners but that he came to call sinners to repentance. Daryl Bock, uh, who is a commentator, has this to say on the subject. Jesus associated with sinners and condemned all sin. Their sin as well as the sin of others. Jesus aggressively formed relationships that would help lay the basis of an acceptance from which the challenge about lifestyle could be made. It's a necessary both and. Jesus associated with sinners and he condemned all sin. And so we need to be doing both in our witnessing as Well, we should be forming relationships with the unchurched. That's the first step in our 10-step strategy at Outlook, our uh, 10-step strategy of ministry. But if all we do is form relationships with people, if all we do is hang out with people, 
in the hope that they might uh, somehow come to know Jesus by some sort of spiritual osmosis, well, then we are in error. We need to be willing to build relationships of trust through which we can gently, respectfully challenge people's sinfulness and their need for a saviour. This is why um, some people hate that well-known phrase, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Now, the heart of that message is good. It says, let your deeds uh, match your words. Let the beauty of the gospel shine through your adherence to it. But so often it's used as an excuse for just being unwilling to challenge people with the gospel message itself. And I'm preaching this to me as much as I'm preaching it to anybody else. A better phrase would be, preach the gospel at all times, and it will be necessary to use words. Build relationships with the unchurched, spend time with sinners just as Christ did, but in so doing, seek to challenge them about the gospel and about its interaction with, or usually opposition to, their lifestyle. Jesus says in Matthew seven thirteen to 14, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The, narrow, the gate is narrow. People are not going to accidentally stumble upon the gate and walk through the gate towards salvation just because we use good manners and we don't swear and we don't drink too much around them. We need to be willing to call our friends to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They won't just kind of magically become Christians on their own just by our actions. I mentioned our 10-step strategy and I thought it would be a useful time to uh, mention that again, to flag that. Uh, And so this is, we here at Outlook, we believe that every member is a minister and that we are all in ministry. Uh, And so it's not just for the pastor and the staff and the board to be in ministry, but actually everybody is in ministry together. And the bedrock of what it means to be in ministry, the minimum requirements, you might say, are that we follow the 10-step strategy. And the first step is build relationships with the unchurched. We should be friends with sinners. Christ was friends with sinners, but it's only step one. As we build relationships with the unchurched, We also should be praying for them. We should be praying for for an openness to the gospel, for a willingness to hear and respond to the call to repentance and faith. We should also be praying that God gives us an opportunity to do step three, which is to share a verbal witness. It is necessary to use words, and we need to be ready and willing to do so in our interactions with our friends. And so I think what that means is that we need to properly understand and learn what the gospel message actually is. We need to learn how to communicate the gospel to people. We need to practice it. Uh, We need to test ourselves on it so that we're ready when an opportunity arises to share it. The next step, step four, is that we then invite them to church. We invite them to try out the community of faith. Now, you don't have to invite them to a Sunday service. I recognise that this can be threatening for people who are not believers, but you might invite them to join your life group. You might invite them to a special event that we have. Uh, We've got Dan Patterson coming later in the year again. You might invite them to that. 
If you're, if you're a high schooler, you might invite them to come along to a mega night that the youth group is running. Some way, though, it's good to introduce people to the community of faith. Now, hopefully somewhere in there, hopefully somewhere in this process, you'll get the chance to help them to connect to God, to help them to commit to Christ and his cause. We want to be leading people through the process of faith commitment, helping them understand what it means to follow Christ and to be part of his body. And so once they've made the commitment, then we need to be doing step six. We need to be helping them to worship God, helping them to slot in on a Sunday, showing them what it is that we do uh, in this strange place and why we stand up and sing in a group of people, which is so rare in this culture. Who comes together and sings as a group of people? We need to be helping them to start a Bible reading plan, helping, showing them uh, what prayer is and helping them to pray. It doesn't just stop when we uh, get people to convert to Christ. Um, we need to be leading them through the process of discipleship, helping them to worship God and helping them to, step seven, grow, helping them to live by God's word. The thing is that we, um, Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission doesn't say go therefore and make converts of all people. It says go therefore and make disciples of all people, of all nations. And so we're all ministers. We're all responsible for discipleship, responsible for our own discipleship, and we're responsible for the discipleship of those around us. If you need tools to help to disciple one another, you can come and talk to me. You can see Ross, who I don't think is here today. Um, we've got some resources that we can help you to disciple one another with. Once we've, got, once we've done that, we also want to help our friends to get involved in ministry. We want to help them to do steps eight and steps nine, which is to serve and to give. I said that in, in our church, we are all in ministry. And so when our friends join, when they come to Christ, we want to instill that truth in them as well. We want them to understand that uh, we want to help them get involved in ministry, help them to serve in church, help them to give to Christ's work, both in their time and in their finances. And finally, we want to be doing step 10, which is uh, reaching and developing others. We want to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Now, of course, uh, making this into a 10-step strategy uh, in our kind of uh, linear mindset is not super helpful because quite often you're doing many of these things concurrently and you're doing them repetitiously. You have to continue to do them in your own life. And so it's not technically a step-by-step -step in that sense. But all of these 10 steps together paint a picture of what we believe a fully devoted follower of Christ is. It's a person. And so we want to be building relationships with the unchurched. We want to be praying for them. We want to be sharing a verbal witness with them. We want to be inviting them to church. We want to help them connect to God, but we want to make sure that we're connecting to God as well. We want to help them worship God whilst making sure that we're going deeper in our own worship of God as well. We want to help them to grow and to live by God's word, ensuring that we are doing that as well. We want to help them get involved in service, uh, but also we want to make sure that we are serving as well. We want to be helping them understand the value of giving money and time to Christ's work, but we want to ensure that we're being a generous witness as well in our own giving of time and resources. And we want to be helping them reach out and develop others, disciples making disciples making disciples. So, 
Jesus was a friend of sinners, much to the ire of the religious authorities of his day. He was a master at building relationships of trust through which he was able to share the bad news of sin and the good news of salvation through repentance and faith. Jesus didn't just hang out with sinners. He wasn't a live and let live Messiah. He spent time with sinners who were open to his message, who were open to being called to repentance and faith. So what are we doing? Are we following the 10-step strategy? Are we willing to go there? Or are we just kind of perpetually doing step one? Just kind of perpetually hanging out with people without stepping up, without being willing to actually challenge our friends to repentance and faith. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for your message through the scriptures for us today. God, a message, a reminder for us that we need to be sharing the gospel. We need to be using words, God, but we also need people to understand their sinfulness before you. Father, give us a sense of your holiness. Help us to properly understand how just you are so that we can then share with our friends with conviction their need for a saviour. Father, the world around us is very self-righteous. It's very uh, aware of how or the world has some image of heaven, God, that you know is something we need to challenge. This image that everyone goes to heaven, Uncle Jim and all his friends, God, help us to challenge that. Help us to do it with love. Help us to do it with grace. But might we be willing to step up and have hard conversations with people? Might we be willing to call people to repentance and faith? Father, help us to follow your witness through Jesus of spending time with sinners, but not just kind of spending time around them. Lord, spending time with them, building relationships through which we can share your gospel, your good news. Remind us again of what good news it is. Help us to understand that it is good news so that we are compelled to share it with those around us. Thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together. In Jesus' name, amen.